the devil and he will flee from you. We heard James talk about that last week. The same concepts, really the heart of St. Peter's first letter. First Peter is one of my favorite books in the Bible. You can read it cover to cover in about 45 minutes, five chapters, might not even take you that long. And it's going to give you just about everything you could possibly want to know from the New Testament. The only thing he doesn't really get into is the Lord's Supper. Other than that, it could practically be a catechism for the church. It is complete as, as a letter. And for that reason, it stands at the head of what is sometimes called the Catholic epistles, as opposed to the letters written by St. Paul that are written to individual congregations, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi. Peter writes to everybody. He writes to the entire Catholic church. And remember, the word Catholic does not mean Roman or Papist, worshiping the Pope, flying his flag, like they did yesterday, by the way, at the Walk for Life. It doesn't mean that. Catholic just means all of them, all of them. And you can even maybe hear that to call something the Roman Catholic Church is an oxymoron. Those words are opposite. Roman, only from Rome. Catholic, everybody, right? It, it doesn't really go together. It's a little backwards. In any case, Peter, by, by the way, whom the, the Pope claims to be, Peter, the original apostle, he writes this letter to you. To you specifically, to the church in every place. Today, we're not going to be able to look at every piece of it, but I want to give you a bird's eye view again of some of the most substantial sections, memorable sections, sections that you can go and read without reading the whole book and have them immediately jump out at you as encouragement, as gospel, as the path you should go, as an exhortation, again, to resisting and fighting against the devil, his lies, his deceptions, and that weight of darkness and doubt that certainly is hanging over our current spirit of life. The Germans had an interesting way of talking about that. They'd call that the zeitgeist. Can you say that with me? Zeitgeist. Yeah, it means time ghost. And it's their way of talking about the spirit of the age. And most of those who use this word didn't think the devil really existed. They, they were atheists. But it's ironic to me, again, that they would call the spirit of the age the time ghost when that's exactly what the devil is. He's a fallen angel, a spirit who hides behind time, who bides his time, who plays a long game, knowing his time is short and having only one goal, to trick you into forgetting what you know, which is that he is risen. Hallelujah. He wants you to forget that and forget that that means that he's going to come again and bring a much better world than this one. He wants you to put all your chips in this life and so to forget about the life of the world to come. Peter is going to remind us all the way through about how good it is to fight back against that. The first section we're going to look at is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. This is on page 1014 of your pew Bible. So I'd encourage you to turn there unless, of course, you're bringing your own Bible with you. Uh, some stories I heard about Bibles being given for Christmas and showing up in pockets. It's really kind of a neat thing to see us as a congregation getting into this idea. And remember that there are cards in the pew with pens there for you to take notes as well. And if you don't know how to take notes, I understand. It's not like every single high school English class ever did a good job of teaching you to care about note-taking, right? Some did, some didn't. But the first thing to do is just write down the sections we look at. Right? So grab that card and write down 1 Peter chapter 3, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. 
and maybe later this week. If that's all you write down today, good. Then you'll go home and maybe you'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 again, and you'll remember some of what we talk about here. All right, so this is not the opening of the book, but it's the first thing he says in his main thrust, his main preaching. Here we go. I'm going to read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I almost feel like I don't need to explain it. It's so clear, but I'll go back and I'll say it again just in case. First off, blessed be God the Father. That's just him saying, we should speak about this. We should say this again. These should be words that are on our lips. God be praised. Alleluia. He's our God. Why? Because according to his great mercy, remember how we talked about grace last week? It's about God wanting to save more than about God wanting you to give. According to his great mercy, he has, past tense, already done, caused, made it to happen, us, that's you and me, to be born again. Now, Lutherans don't use that language very often, even though it's in the Bible, and that's because there's other Christians who talk about being born again, and they tend to mean you got to go speak in tongues now or something crazy like that. But what it means, again, is that simply you believe in something the rest of the world doesn't believe. You believe a new life is coming, and you already have been born a child in that new life. Your first birth is a birth into Adam, a birth into death. Your birth into Christ is a birth into everlasting life. And again, he has caused this to happen already. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope, right? Your new birth in Christ is about hope. That's not what you see. Nobody hopes for what they see. They hope for what they don't have yet. What do we hope for? He says it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That which has happened in the past is promised to you in the future. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And when he does, he will raise your body from the dead with his resurrection. That's your living hope. This is then, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's not heaven that's jesus that's his body that's his resurrection having risen from the dead he can never die again and while he reigns over all things at the right hand of the father he is kept imperishable and undefiled with that inheritance as that inheritance for you you're waiting for this by faith faith is the deposit of the holy spirit to believe it is true but so much more is coming when he comes again You then, who are waiting for this, verse 5, are being kept by God's power. This is so important, Lutherans, as we watch our church body and our congregations and our schools struggle as they have for the last 40 and 50 years. We've gotten smaller and smaller, and we think, what can we do? How can we stop it? Maybe we need to change. 
all of that is fear. What we should have instead, what this promises us, is confidence. That what happens to you as a Christian is God's work upon you, not your work. God is the one keeping you, guarding you through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, a push forward to the final day, the day of Christ's return. All right, we're going to jump straight from there to verse 13, same chapter. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. In your pew Bible, it's on the bottom of that same column, where it says, therefore, right, because of this, because you know this, because of your faith, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, there's hope again, fully on the grace, there's grace again, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to say what that verse means again. Therefore, because you know this, because you know he's coming again, set your mind on that. Let that be the thing you tell yourself when you get up in the morning. In fact, can I say it? Meredith Meredith said to me this morning, I said, how are you doing? She says, one of those mornings when I say, Jesus, can you come back? <laughs> you know, uh, it didn't feel too good, right? Uh, and, you know, uh, you can ask her about it. She's here. She's doing fine. But, you know, you get up early and uh, all that. Um, so in any case, when you get up in the morning, instead of doing affirmations, it will be a great day because I've decided it will be a great day. No, remember that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Set your mind firmly on that. Set your mind for action on that right? Christianity is not about passivity. We are saved by him doing it, but what he does is he births us again to a living hope, a hope of action, and again, sober-mindedness. I don't like talking about these things in the pulpit, but I, I have to right now. If you're listening to a TV or a screen, you can't believe everything it says. And you're like, yeah, of course, I know. I know you think you know, but you keep listening. And over time, it moves you. They've known this for years. Go look up the concept mass formation psychosis. It's not unique to us. It's been used in history ever since they figured out how if you just make noise in somebody's ear every single day, eventually they'll change their mind. It's common in totalitarian governments. I don't know what we're under now. We're under a mass media who knows what zeitgeist. But the point is, you can't just have it on all the time and expect it not to move you. You need to set your mind for action. You need to strive to be sober-minded. And it begins by remembering to read the scriptures at least every day so that you have a counterpoint to the liar and his lies that he keeps chirping and harping at you. Yes? All right, so going on, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We'll come back to that holy talk in a moment. I want to focus on obedient children. Another word that Lutherans don't talk about a lot, and and I kind of get why, because in a lot of Christian churches, obedience is sort of the mark of your faith. Like you're always judging yourself based upon how much you've submitted to God. And as a result, you end up with a very broken conscience. You're never good enough. You never obey enough. 
but, but that's not his point here. His point is to recognize the difference between you and other people. You have a king. You have a father who is your king. You have a brother in Christ who is your king. And what he wants from you is for when he says, do this, you go, yes, sir. Like a good son would do. I was talking with someone else yesterday about uh, whether or not they'd be willing to pray some psalms every day. Take one of those Sons of Solomon packets out of the back and, and pray one or two of those psalms every day. And he kind of hemmed and he, he kind of hawed. Oh, it seems like a lot. I said, five minutes, man. Oh, five minutes. Oh, maybe I can do it. Okay. And, and I, I said, you know, this is a, a, an individual who I know is very active in certain kinds of, of sport. I'm very talented, actually. And I say, what do you do when your coach says do something? Do, do you argue? Do you whine? Do you debate? It's amazing to me to watch families, lots of families, give all sorts of attention to sports where if the coaches say, be here at this time, at this time, everything changes to go do that. But Jesus says, pray to me. And we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't feel like it today. Read the Bible. That's what this is talking about, right? Give the credit to God that you give to other men. That's what he's talking about. And so not be conformed to your former passions and ignorance, right? To recognize that the uh, feeling, that's ignorance at work in your heart. Uh, that's the passion of your heart, which is filled with sin, trying to tell you the wrong thing to do. And your war right now, until you die, is to not listen to that. Uh, to get better and better at calling it out for what it is. Oh, there's my stomach again lying to me. Ha! And to then be able to say, hallelujah. I will not listen to, I'll at least get hallelujah out of my mouth. That's easy enough. That's the name of Jesus. He is risen. Hallelujah. Just get it out of your mouth. Start to praise God and you'll find it gets easier and easier. The darkness, in fact, recedes. But if you never open your mouth, if you never speak these words aloud, the darkness just gets heavier and heavier. The doubt just gets harder and harder. All right. So you are now then holy as a result of this. When he says to be holy as he is holy, this is not a call to perfection, right? Don't hear this is about moral righteousness. You must be perfect as Jesus is perfect. You must be set apart because Jesus has set you apart. And that again means to believe what's actually happened, uh, to not forget that you don't belong here anymore. That you, while everyone else is trying to build a mansion to last forever, you realize it's all a tent. The biggest mansion's a tent, and someday it's going to be dust, but you won't be. Whenever you go to the dust, you're going to come back out of it again. Remembering that is to be set apart and holy, and that will change your mind. It will make you a person ready to act in ways other people are not ready to act. As we'll see, you'll surprise people with this, by the way, when you get there. But let's get to that text. Moving forward, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here he says to us, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Things that once upon a time, I think everyone would have said, don't do that. But if you look at the rage machine that's making our kids what they are today, malice and anger and envy is exactly what they're encouraged to embrace. So we do need to strive against these things. We need to recognize that having everything you want isn't always good for you. But what is more important, what is good for you? Verse 2, 
like newborn infants, remember you've been born again, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up by it into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it goes on, and he'll quote some scripture to prove that there. But like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. That just means be hungry to hear more about Jesus. And that means for you, modern Christian who has a Bible, many people in the past did not, you do. That means learn to use it. Open it up. Realize it has more power in it than anything else around you does. It's not a power of this world. It doesn't work the way the powers of this age and world work, but it does bring you things you can't find anywhere else. Peace of heart and conscience being a primary one of those things. Yes, coming to him, hearing about him, knowing how he was rejected by the world so that you could be accepted by God. And so verse four calls him this living stone, this cornerstone, this keystone, the foundation stone of the new temple. And you yourselves are like different stones being made into this new temple. What is this new temple? Not a building made with hands, but the new humanity that will rise from the dead and is already inhabited by the Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of you. You are his temple individually and together. Being built into that house, he then calls you a holy priesthood. Later in this book, he'll call you a royal priesthood. There's this idea that Lutherans sometimes talk about called the priesthood of all believers. And while the Bible definitely calls you a royal priesthood, it also is a term that has unfortunately been used to set pastors and people against each other in our church body. Who's in charge? Is it the pastor? Well, yes, we have an office of the ministry. Is it the people? Well, we're all royal priests. It's not there to set us against each other. I'm a royal priest, just like you're a royal priest. What's a pastor? He's the guy who gets up and teaches. He's the guy who you get to throw stones at when he doesn't look like he's doing what he says. He's the guy who's supposed to ask you, how you doing? So he knows whether the Lord's Supper is good for you right now. That's what a pastor is. But a royal priest, that's a Christian. Someone who's both a king and a priest. A king who rules. How do you rule? By the words of God that you speak again over this present age, which in fact will judge this present age on the final day when they're recounted, when those who don't believe have awareness that, oh, I had a chance. He spoke to me right then and I thought he was stupid. That's how you reign. Yeah. Sometimes conversely, they hear and they go, oh, I'm wrong. I should believe that. Again, that's how you reign. Royalty. Priesthood. Now you're making intercession. Now you're making sacrifices only we know the final sacrifice is made. So what is it that he really wants from us now? Blessed be the Lord, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his name on our lips. He wants our prayers ascending to him. And again, don't forget then to be a priest is to know that this God who saved everyone through Jesus hears your every request. Every single one of them. Do you not have what you want out of life? Have you asked Jesus for it? 
Huh? If he said no, do you obey? Do you believe he knows better than you and he's given you what you actually need? That's what it means, again, to be a royal priest, to offer these spiritual sacrifices, which are to give up on your time during the week a little bit to open this Bible, to set aside something else you might want to do so you might pray for both yourself and your world and your church. And again, I promise you, this will not return void when you activate this in your life. When you remember that Christ has died Christ will come again. Jump over to verse 21, where it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Notice how suffering is contingent. It's part of it. You're not going to escape suffering. And you're like, Pastor, you expect me to want to try to be a Christian, even though it's going to cause me to suffer? And I say to you, you're going to suffer no matter what. You're not going to stop suffering. What fool are you to think you're going to put suffering away from this life? What I'm telling you is that suffering in Christ, suffering in knowledge of the hope of what is to come, will give you far more peace of heart than suffering trying to keep your idol from falling down. That'll just give you despair. Or if he really hates you, if he really wants to add iniquity to your iniquity, he'll let you keep the idol up. He'll trap you in it, and then you get pride instead. Despair is far better than pride. Despair, you can repent of pride, just causes a fall. Uh, Christ suffered as an example for you to follow. And now here he is, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right? He prayed, he trusted, he believed the promises. He was the perfect man. Not so that you can try to be the perfect man yourself, but you can aspire to what it means. You can see how good goodness is when compared to wickedness. And when you see wickedness, you can despise it, even when it's in yourself. You can see it in yourself and despise it because you know you're already adopted. You're already a king. You're already a priest. It's not a test. He's not surprised that you find sin in your heart. All he wants is for you to pray to him. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Help me hold my hand toward a better way. Verse 24, he bore our sins yeah, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been, past tense, healed. That's what I just said, so I won't go over that one again. Let's jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 18, where he's going to get into this bit about baptism that we heard read a moment ago. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to hear it one more time. Notice it starts with the same idea. Christ suffered. Christ also suffered once, that's the cross, for sins. The righteous, that's him, perfect. For the unrighteous, that's you. That he might bring us, that's you, to God. Him being put to death in the flesh, but that's with your sin, and being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. When we confess in the creed, he descended into hell. That's the verse that that's based upon. Because they, these spirits in prison, formerly did not believe when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Now, I, I mentioned English teachers earlier in, in the sermon. Any English teacher alive is going to be like, run on sentence, uh, too many phrases, too many clauses, and it's true. In Greek, it's just as bad. It, it goes and goes and goes. But he gets from Christ's suffering to Noah and the people in the ark with the water destroying everything. And what he wants is you to see that Noah and the people in the ark with the water destroying everything was a picture of Christ on the cross. And the people inside the ark, that's you inside the body of Jesus. And baptism, he says, is what does that now. Not that baptism saves you in the sense of it pays for you. It saves you in the sense of it promises you that you are paid for by the cross of Jesus. It's exactly what the text is going to say. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, that's the flood, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body. It's not a little magic formula, okay? And it's not just about cleaning your wounds here on earth, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. When you remember you are baptized, you can remember that God has given you a clean conscience through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who again now has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, all in subjection to him. Yes. Going on and reading more. Uh, chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Again, don't hear ceasing from sin as I come to church next week and I have nothing to confess during confession absolution. That's not what he means. But what he means is you're going to know the difference between yourself, a Christian, and other non-Christian talk. You're going to know the difference between wanting to do good because it's truly good and not caring. You just want to do what you want because it feels right. You're going to know the difference between those things. So you'll live the rest of your life here in a fight against your flesh. You'll live the rest of your life here rejoicing that you've been set free from the lies of the devil and glad to despise the stench of his destruction when you see it, yeah? Four, verse three, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Lawlessness is the key word there, the key word there. Um, there was a, uh, I won't get too specific here, but uh, somewhere in these United States, there was someone who was put into office just yesterday. Uh, he's a governor. One of the first things he did is he said, our Department of Justice is going to prosecute crimes again. This is an amazing thing. The previous governor was not prosecuting crimes. That's called lawlessness. And the result of lawlessness is more lawlessness. Now, I don't care. Again, I'm not trying to get you to vote for anybody. I want you to love lawfulness. I want you to love people who say they're going to do something and do it. I want you to distrust people who say they're going to do something and don't do it. I want you to be people who say you're going to do something and do it. And specifically, I want you to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to be a son of the kingdom. And no, you're not going to achieve that. He's already given it to you. But as a result, you're going to believe what it says. And so you're going to stand again, set apart. And when you see lawlessness, you're going to know it. You're going to know it for what it is. And instead of saying, oh my, where's it all going to? Or making some wisecrack about it. You can pray about it. 
Dear Jesus, have mercy on us. We're going to close here with chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. In the very back of the book, last page, that you can see uh, 1017 in your pew Bible. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, right? That's what I mean when I say pray rather than act right away. Pray. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I can think it's very clear by itself, but I'll, I'll briefly try to summarize it here again. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's not pray so that your life will get better. It's pray because God has already said, I'm for you, not against you. And in the very act of submitting your will to him by saying, I give it to you, Jesus. I can't fix it. I need you to fix it. That itself is hope. That itself is peace. That itself is letting go of that which otherwise just ruminates in the heart and destroys further. He is for you, not against you. When you acknowledge it out loud, that is made real to you. You experience it. It's not, Lutheranism is not about experience, but it's not without experience. It's not about your subjective faith. How much do you believe? But it's not without your subjective faith. You will believe. And your believing will be a thing that happens in your body, in your mind, in your heart. Yes? So cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Know that devil is out there. And then resist him. How? Again, one psalm a day. Have you been doing Psalm 1 all year like I asked? If not, maybe it's the time to pick it up. Yeah? Try Psalm 125 again. You know a little bit of it in Hebrew by now, I wouldn't wager. Yeah, or pick up that Sons of Solomon booklet, ladies. The Daughters of Wisdom is available at sonsofsolomon.net, especially for you. Hopefully we'll have those booklets in the next couple of months back there on the back again. Or take notes during the sermon. Write down a couple of these verses. Here's what we looked at again. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, and 13 to 16. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and 21 to 25. Big section. Chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, 4. And if nothing else, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah. And then knowing that you will suffer while you live in this life, do not forget that after a little while, this life, he is going to return with eternal glory to restore you, to confirm you, to strengthen and establish you in a world that will never pass away because Christ has died. Christ will come again. In the name of Jesus. Amen.